Welcome to Shield of the Republic, a podcast sponsored by the Bulwark and the Miller Center of Public Affairs at the University of Virginia and dedicated to the proposition articulated by Walter Lippmann during World War II that a strong and balanced foreign policy is the shield of our democratic republic. I'm Eric Edelman, counselor at the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments, a Bulwark contributor and a non-resident fellow at the Miller Center. I'm joined beaming in from the United Kingdom by my partner in this enterprise, Elliot Cohen, the Robert E. Osgood Professor of Strategy at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies and the Arlie Burke Chair in Strategy at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Elliot, how is your foray to the United Kingdom? Well, you know, it's a uh, it's an odd thing, Eric. This is a trip that my wife and I had planned for a long time. We're on a walking holiday in the Cotswolds, which is uh, lovely and you know has all the charm you would expect. We're reading, rereading Jane Austen. Uh, but then, of course, this uh, these extraordinary events happened in the Middle East, and it's. You know, it's different from other crises because, and I'm, I'm, I suspect this is true of you as well, you know, this is coming very close to home. We have uh, very dear friends over there whose um, nephew was killed in one of the very first uh, uh, days of this, of the Hamas attack. We have, uh, you know, we have family there, including some very close family. Everybody know uh, we know who has... Uh, Men of military age, reservists being called up, and of course we, they're men and young men and women in the military, and it's uh, you know not to put my heart too much in my sleeve, but the fact is that you know as a Jew you you look at this and you just say my God it never ends. Yeah, no, it's uh, and of course both of us have former students who are either yes. serving or have had relatives killed or taken hostage in some cases. So yes, this is very this is very personal I think for both of us. Yeah. So let's start uh with a piece that you uh published in the Atlantic the other day which I think is very important which is to recall that uh, the Israelis when it comes to dealing with war and particularly with failures in war are relentlessly and ruthlessly self-critical and yeah. and that uh, there is a resilience that comes from that ability to be self-critical we we know for instance that there've been a lot of comparison to the 73 war and the strategic and tactical surprise uh, that took place then that put the state in the first couple of days of that war in some very real peril, a two-front two front war, both with Egypt and Syria, that afterwards there was a, a commission, the Agronaut Commission, which looked very deeply at the pathologies um, of uh, Israeli intelligence and why they had missed this and, and also the policymaking uh, pathologies. And it shook the nation. I mean, it it in some sense... Uh, you know, created a political earthquake. I mean, there was in the immediate aftermath, a unity government as we are having formed now in Israel. But the long-term consequence four years later was the end of Labor Party dominance and the arrival of the uh, Begin-led Likud government and essentially an Israeli permanent, I would say, turn to the right in Israeli politics. So 
talk a little bit about your piece and then let's talk about what the impacts of this are likely to be. Sure. So, uh, I mean, I guess the, the first thing to stipulate is, uh, you know, having said at the outset that both of us feel, you know, we're one or two degrees of separation from people who are really uh, suffering in this. Uh, you know, it's our obligation to be analytic as well. So the one of the things I said in the piece is I actually I recalled a conversation. I, I, I didn't quite frame it this way, but it was a conversation with Secretary Rice during the uh, North Korean nuclear reactor uh, uh, crisis where, you know, he's you and I both know well there was a North Korean nuclear reactor in Syria that the Israelis eventually destroyed. And the the question that she had was, would the Israelis be willing to risk a larger Middle East war? And she was doubtful, and I understood why, because she had been, I think, really quite scarred by the 2006 Lebanon war, where uh, actually in some ways the Israelis had done quite well against certain kinds of targets, long-range uh, Hezbollah missiles and that sort of thing. Um, but the ground war was a botch. And I, you know, I remember saying to her, Madam Secretary, that the history of the IDF is a history of failure. You know, she kind of looked at me. But the truth is that that's what it is. If you look through the history, even going back to the pre-state period, it's a history of failure and then very rapid recovery following some pretty brutal self-criticism. So even smaller things. So in 1956, for example, the Israeli tank corps did not do particularly well. And, you know, immediately after they look into that, they uh, put in uh, some new military, a new general in particular. This is during the Sinai crisis in 1956 yeah. when they go into Sinai. Um, and, you know, by the early 60s, they actually have an extremely fine armored corps. Uh, you know, 1982, you look at their performance against surface-to-air missiles, which had given them real challenges in 1973. They had really fixed that and moved beyond. So I think it's, it's a culture... Israeli military culture is a culture of continual adaptation, but I think superimposed on that is a sort of strategic culture of really ruthless inquiry. I mean, the Agronaut Commission was brutal, not to the guys lower down, but it was brutal to the senior political and military leaders who lost their jobs. There was a similar sort of thing, the Vinograd Commission, which you may... Right, after 2006. After 2006, there were similar kinds a little bit different, but after 1982 as well, where the performance of Israeli ground forces came in for a lot of criticism. So I think it's it's quite fair to expect really two things. First, that at the tactical level, the Israelis are going to recover extremely quickly. I mean, they, they have the most profound motivations you can imagine to do well in this, what's going to be, I think, a very ferocious campaign in Gaza. Uh, not just payback, but the desire to, you know, remove this threat for good, uh, whether or not that's doable, we can, you and I can discuss. But I think then at the kind of higher political level, to me, this means uh, Bibi is doomed and the the country's politics are going to be transformed. And, and, and I suspect for the better, I mean, I, I do think People uh, like, um, what's his name, Itamar Ben-Gvir and uh, uh, Smotrich and these real right-wing crazies that Bibi Netanyahu cut deals with, they've been saying crazy things, which have infuriated some of their fellow ministers who've actually told them, in one case, telling Ben-Gvir to shut up. Ben-Gvir said, you know, if people listened to me, this wouldn't have happened, which is nonsense. 
So I think you're going to see a political earthquake. I, I do think, though, I mean, and, and we should kind of parse all that. Um, I have to say, and I'm really curious to hear your views on this, the intelligence failure is astounding. Now, there's, it, it looks to me as if there's probably an operational failure as well in terms of having adequate ready forces just in case because you never predict anything and all that. In the same way, 73 was partly an intelligence failure. It was also an operational failure in some ways. The magnitude of this intelligence failure is, I think in some ways goes beyond 73, because in 73, the Israelis actually monitored the buildup on their borders. They just almost willfully misinterpreted it. In this case, you know, you just have the feeling that the that Hamas, I suspect through the Iranians, but I, again, I'd be curious to know what you think, had a really good idea of how the Israelis collect on them. And and somehow were able to devise a complex, sophisticated operation without, you know, it being detected. And that's that's worrisome and it's um and it's puzzling. What do, what do you say? So I think there is no such thing in in a sense as a pure well that let me let me let me take that back. There, there are pure intelligence failures, but more often than not, when we describe intelligence failures, they are not purely intelligence failures. They are uh, both intelligence and policy failures, and they are made up, moreover, of different kinds of problems. So there's collection problems, and you've pointed to one of them, which is, I think, uh, there is a very good Reuters lengthy piece on the Hamas uh, effort here to protect the buildup from, you know, prying uh, Israeli ears and eyes. And they clearly maintained a, a high degree of operational security, which um, the Israelis, you know, uh, you know, therefore missed what was what was going on. But but uh, there's also an analytic failure. You know, and and the analytic failure goes beyond the intelligence; it goes to the political level. So, you know, we have these stories, and we'll have to again. The commission will have to sort all of this out, and you know, figure out what is true and what is not. As you and I both know from our government service, first reports are, you know, frequently, if not always, wrong. And so, you know, I, everything I say, I, I say with you know a high degree of tentativeness, but. It appears that the Egyptian intelligence folks reached out to the Israelis and said something something's brewing in Gaza, and essentially the Israeli leadership, including Bibi Netanyahu, kind of just brushed it off and and said, you know, you know, now some of the defense is a defense you and I know about from personal experience, which is, you know, the intelligence wasn't, you know, specific and it wasn't actionable. You know, and therefore there was nothing I, the policymaker, could really do about it. But it's clear, I think, and this Reuters piece is very good on that subject, that there was a conscious effort at denial and deception by Hamas, and that they were counting on having sold the Israelis on a narrative that Hamas was not interested in another round of warfare uh, after the 2007-8 cast-led operation, after the 2014-2021, you know, kind of mini wars with Hamas. Uh, 
that they, they took advantage of the fact that the Israelis had concluded that the way to deal with this was mowing the grass and going kind of back, you know, to bomb Hamas and, you know, damage their infrastructure. And, and that Hamas had gotten the Israelis convinced that they were not ready for another round. They really wanted to, you know, um, you know, do something to improve the economic situation in Gaza, you know, get more permits for uh, Gazan uh, workers to enter the West Bank and or Israel proper to work and then go home through the Erez crossing, in fact, which they, you know, which they disabled. And that as a result of, of that predisposition, and as you and I know, very easy for policymakers when confronted with terrible, bad problems to believe what they want to believe uh, rather than, you know, hard, harder realities. And, and as a common mentor of ours once taught, taught us, you know, if you think what you want to believe and what you do believe are the same thing, you should probably think again. But I don't think that happened in Israel. I think that they, uh, I think there was a widespread sort of group think that, yeah, you know, Hamas is not a problem. Yeah, we got problems on the West Bank, but Hamas is not a problem right now. Pidge is a problem. Yeah, I th- and I think they were, I, I think that's absolutely right. And, you know, it is a, it's a fundamental principle of uh, deception operations that you, you can't convince people of things they don't want to believe. But so what you do is you, if you can figure out what they do believe or they're inclined to believe, you reinforce what they're inclined to believe. And that, you know, it's interesting, that may be one of the things that will be most important to pay attention to is uh, not so much how did Hamas hide stuff, but how did they reinforce the Israeli government's preferred views, which, after all, would not have been that hard to discover. So I think that's I think that's right. I mean, I also think there is an operational part of it. You know, I think about the classic case and all this, of course, of Pearl Harbor. And uh, which I remember once looking at quite closely. And, you know, the thing that struck me is, I, you know, I think it was a week, 10 days before the actual attacks. The naval and military commanders at Pearl Harbor got a message that began, this is a war warning. And And yet, you know, the airplanes were still lined up wingtip to wingtip. The ammunition lockers were all locked. So, you know... The uh, sailors had to go looking for bolt cutters so they could begin uh, anti-aircraft operations. They, you know, they didn't do the kind of things that you would do even in the absence of exquisite warning about what was going to happen. So, and I suspect that there's something like that here. Part of what may have happened on that front, just and then I want to go back to the on a higher political level. You know, the Israelis have put a lot of effort into building a wall around Gaza. Mm-hmm. And uh, part of this also include very sensitive uh, sensor systems because the, the I mean, they knew that what Hamas wanted to do was attack these settlements. And the way they were originally going to do is with tunnels. And so they developed very exquisite sensors to detect tunneling activity. And, and you know, they came up with a very sophisticated thing. It was not a sophisticated enough network to defeat you know, a really large-scale attack, which included some pretty innovative stuff, drones dropping uh, bombs, people coming in by paraglider, and so on. And and it is puzzling that the Israelis had such minimal reserves in the area, so that some of these 
you know, the kibbutzim were, went for almost a whole day before IDF troops show up to try to rescue them. And that's, that's going to have to be looked at um, as well. So it is sort of a systemic failure. I, I, to go back to the political level, I, you know, I think they're obviously preoccupied by the West Bank where, you know, to be brutal about it. They were inflaming the situation a lot and they were beginning to reap what they the, had The sown. settlers who are the and settlers. the right-wing elements of the government, you know. Right, the right-wing elements of the government which are cheering them, cheering them on. But I think the other thing that they've been obsessed with for a long time is Hezbollah. You know, and I, I remember talking to an Israeli general who was quite concerned that we were using some of the ammunition which we had stockpiled in Israel and shaving it to Ukraine. I said, well, you know, it is our ammunition. He said, yeah, but we, if there's ever a war with Hezbollah, we're really going to need that. And he was very, very focused on uh, the Hezbollah threat. And I, I do think that they had somehow convinced themselves they had put Hamas in a, in a, in a box and clearly they, they hadn't. Yeah, there clearly was, I think I agree with you. There was an over evaluation of the physical um, and technological barrier that they created, uh, not, you know, not just the um, the sensors. I mean, the sensors, the observation, the automated machine guns, the drone presence uh, that they had uh, for um, a lot of it AI driven, apparently. Yes, and when I talked to one very senior Israeli general who said, "Look, uh, he was talking about the last round of fighting." He said. A lot of this is kind of like postmodern. You said we're this is the first time we've had AI-driven targeting, so you know, generating targets in very, very short periods of time. Well, I yeah, for the, the very sophisticated like tracking and so on. But. Yeah, it's a very, very sophisticated surveillance and reconnaissance. And to the, your point about the tunnels, deep underground walls to to yep. to block the tunnels. But it turned out that the fence and the wall could be very easily taken down by by bulldozers. And I mean, as you say, I think, you know, I mean, this again, it's early days. I don't want to make definitive conclusions, but there does seem to be a bit of the sort of Maginot um, line kind of a psychology here that they had built this technological physical barrier, you know, problem solved. Um, and obviously the problem, you know, was, was not solved. Yeah. You know, it's, um, so in some ways, uh, military affairs are always new and in some ways they're very old. I mean, people have long thought that by building sophisticated wall systems, you could keep out the Picts if you're the Romans here in Britain or keep out the, uh, steppe nomads if you're, uh, in China or the Maginot Line, or the or... Spartans, if you build the long walls down to Piraeus, um, if you're the Athenians, well, the Athenians. yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's uh, it's a natural, I think it's a natural human tendency to think that if I just do it right. And and the truth is, these kinds of systems do work to some extent. It's not the the Germans went around the Maginot Line. In this case, what Hezbollah did was to some extent go. To, to some extent, to bypass it. Can we talk a little bit about the, I, I mean, at some point, I'll, I think we really need to talk about what's going to come next, but um, I, I do, given that you and I take turns bashing the Biden administration and particularly the president for not 
um, on, on, on matters Ukraine related for not delivering the big speech. Um, I have to say, I thought his speech was fantastic. Uh, it was, it was eloquent. It was unequivocal, um, heartfelt. It was absolutely heartfelt. Uh, you know, I know it was a tonic for the Israelis and I've heard from Israeli friends who just, some of them are, tend to be quite cynical and, you know, clearly deeply moved. It's absolutely what they needed at this, uh, at this moment in time. So I just want to pause for a moment to, you know, to say he really, they did what a leader ought to do. Now, you know, as you and I were discussing a little bit before, I think the, one of the things the administration is going to have to face up to is that in this respect, as in several others, it's, you know, desire to switch everything to focus on China is being thwarted by events. And again, I'll to try to be fair, uh, you know, the Trump administration tried to do the same thing and I think failed. Uh, and I think the Obama administration was even beginning to think about it and they failed too. Right. And, you know, in this case, the way they failed is they thought, okay, we can get out of Iraq. We can sort of buy off the Iranians and no, you can't. Yeah, I look. I agree with that. First of all, you know, uh, I like you think the president uh, was at his very best uh, in the speech, and you know, I, I think it gives the lie to the argument that he shouldn't have done something similar on Ukraine because he lacks the uh, you know rhetorical ability to do it or, yep. or the performance, the ability to perform at his age. He, he clearly can. I mean, I think the speech was very well done. As you say, it was a very um, important boon to Israeli morale, um, you know, as best I can tell from everybody I talk to and everything I see. And I think as well, the statement by uh, Karine Jean-Pierre, the, the administration spokesperson denouncing the either equivocal or, you know, um, borderline anti-Israel statements of uh, the squad, you know, particularly Cory Bush and, and Rashida Tlaib and um, Ilhan Omar, Ilhan Omar um, you know, I, th I think that was, you know, also very, very necessary. I think for this administration, it was kind of like a, uh, as, um, as our Bulwark colleague, um, JVL has written uh, today, it was a kind of sister soldier moment which I think yeah. uh, is, is very important. But what I, you know, having, you know, uh, having come to praise Biden, um, let me just say that I wish there were the same spirit of introspection that the Israelis have that you and I have just been talking about on the part of the administration at its larger policy towards the region and in particular towards Iran. So my view is that they came in with a strategy, as you were saying, of attempting to limit uh, American strategic liabilities in the region by, quote, de-escalating with Iran and engaging with Iran. And the pieces of that policy in incorporated a effort to negotiate our way back into the joint comprehensive plan of action that was agreed to by Barack Obama, but withdrawn by uh, Donald Trump to end the policy of maximum pressure on, um, on Iran uh, that the Trump administration had launched, which was, I think, 
wildly more successful than people anticipated. People said you can't, you know, uh, really do these kinds of sanctions without multilateral support. You know, they managed to get, uh, you know, Iranian uh, oil revenues down to something like $8 billion by the end of the uh, Trump administration. But the Biden administration declared that it was a failure and abandoned uh, enforcement of the sanctions on, on oil sales. They de-designated the Houthis in Yemen uh, as part of their outreach effort, uh, which, by the way, led to uh, you know uh, missile attacks and rocketing of the UAE and the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia uh, without very much response by by the U.S. Uh, government, if, if at all, which you know soured those relationships very badly, and. You know, the the result of all of this has been not to make Iran more pliable. The Iranians have shown no interest in actually getting back into the JCPOA, um, despite multiple offers by the administration that the Europeans thought were, you know, reasonable offers. Um, I mean, I, frankly, I think they were offering way too much, but, you know, the Iranians, I think, saved us from ourselves here. So the entire effort to, you know, de-escalate, to quiet the region um, in order to concentrate, you know, on the Indo-Pacific, I think it has ended up essentially enabling and emboldening Iran to the point that we now are potentially on the cusp of the very kind of regional war they were, they were seeking, you know, to avoid. Now we'll, you know, maybe we will avoid it. We'll see a lot will depend on how Iran and Hezbollah react in the next few days. Uh, maybe they're going to stand aside, you know, as the Israelis go in, you know, on the ground into Gaza. I have my doubts, but, you know, but we'll see. But but certainly Jake Sullivan's comments two weeks ago that the region has never been more quiet, you know, in, you know, in a couple yeah. of years have not aged yeah, very well. Age well to the, yeah. yeah, that it's particularly about the Middle East. You know, it seems to me it's always folly to make that kind of statement because it just has a way of blowing up when you uh, when you least expect it. How, how large a role do you think Iran played in this? You know, I, I, we don't know yet. Um, the U.S. government and the Israeli government have both said the same thing, that they have not seen uh, any evidence, direct evidence of, uh, you know, an Iranian direct role. I mean, obviously, both governments have said, you know, Obviously, Iran is complicit. They fund Hamas. They supply them with the components to build all these rockets and missiles that, you know, the, over 4,500 have been fired into Israel, which is an enormous uh, number coming from Gaza. I mean, of course, in the north, uh, Hezbollah has 150,000 of these things, which is why your Israeli general friend was rightly concerned about, you know, a, 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 northern, a northern front. So... You know, I it, it's hard to know. I mean, the Wall Street Journal had an article uh, which was sourced to a couple of uh, Hamas sources saying Iran helped them plan this and uh, gave them a green light to go. You know, I think we're just going to have to see, it, it, you know, Iran is denied that. So is uh, Hezbollah. Um, you know, we'll have to we'll have to see. You can understand, you know, people have lots of motivations for saying yes or no. Uh, denying or claiming credit here, um, it doesn't 
I, I don't think it's dispositive that the U.S. intelligence services and the Israeli intelligence services are saying we don't we don't yet have any evidence of a direct hand in this because, of course, they had no evidence of the whole operation to begin right. with. I, I, that's what I, that's what I was about to say. Um, and and the thing is, the Iranians are the masters of the sort of surrogate and proxy warfare. I mean, it's, they've done it really at a level of genius when you look at it in Iraq and uh, uh, Yemen and uh, Syria. Syria. I, I guess I find it hard to believe that Hamas simply on its own could develop all the technical skills that they needed for this. I mean, the training paragliders, I mean, it, it's now underneath it all. I mean, we've, we haven't talked really directly about the, the horrors of this and, you know, violation of corpses, rape, beheading of babies. Um, I have a, another piece that's coming out in the Atlantic in the next day or two, which tries to deal with that. And, and um, the piece basically says, look, what you're dealing with here is barbarism. And so it is a mistake, which I think a number of people make, to think of, try to think about this in purely kind of strategic terms where, you know, Hamas must have certain well-defined political objectives uh, and whether it's blowing up the Israel-Saudi deal, which I'm sure they wanted to do, and so on. I think, you know, some of this is just, this is barbarism. They want to kill Jews. They want to, and I, I what I try to do is to talk about it because I think what we're seeing now is the spread of barbarism. Um, and, you know, we saw it with ISIS. I think we see it in Russian behaviors. I mean, Russian behaviors are barbaric. They routinely torture, rape, murder. Um, and, you know, this now amounts at some level to a civilizational kind of threat. And I remember right after 9-11, those of us who thought that this heralded that kind of broader threat were accused of being hysterical and overblowing it, that this is just a, something that requires a somewhat more vigorous kind of police response. Uh, but I continue to think that that's, a, that's actually a bit of a misdiagnosis, uh, that there is, there is rationality in some of this and there's purposiveness in some of it. But what there really is behind this is, you know, deep sense of grievance uh, at some sense, it, you know, some of this is it's driven by feeling that you're a loser in some ways. It's, you know, having objectives which are not rational. You know, our religion is going to extirpate every other religion on earth or we are going to wipe other states or peoples completely off the face of the map. Um, and so therefore you cannot simply respond in a kind of Metternichian way of saying, okay, well, we're going to use force, but in very precise, limited ways so that, you know, it's bargaining, except, you know, you're just using uh, bullets. It's, it's, it's something qualitatively different. And, and the one last thing I'll, I'll say, and then be curious to hear what you have to say. The thing that should trouble us is these people are talking to each other mm -hmm. and working with each other to some extent. And, you know, the Iranians and Hamas, if you look at 
the Russians and the Iranians. Uh, it is very striking on this one. You know, after the all the effort that the that Bibi in particular sank into developing relationships with the Russians, basically Lavrov has given them a sort of brush off. The Russians have have demonstrated no sympathy whatsoever for the Israelis. Putin hasn't spoken about it yet. He has yet to say a word. Uh, there's been no statement from the Russian government. Nothing. After all of Bibi's trips to Moscow, by the way, I mean Bibi went to Moscow over the last few years more than he came to Washington, and you know, yeah. But, and and by the way, I think we should also stipulate. We, you know, my view is Bibi was a disaster for Israel. He's been a disaster for a long time, uh, and you know, all the bets that they placed that he placed personally fell off. That's what, and it's one of the reasons why I think he's doomed. But I, but in any case, I I do think that you're seeing a kind of routinization of this and a, a spread of barbarism that we need to call out. We need to understand that, you know, in this case, in Ukraine and in some others, this is, it's not, it's not Clausewitz in the usual sense of, you know, state on state operating for interests. It's civilization and barbarism. Yeah. So a couple of thoughts about that. First, I look forward to reading the piece, of course. Uh, you know, our friend Ann Applebaum had a piece the other day in the Atlantic uh, as well about the yep. you know the end of rules, and I mean, she pointed out quite aptly that you know uh, you know some of this started not started, but the Russians certainly uh, when they went into Syria in 2015, um, you know, colluded in and directed and participated in some incredibly barbaric assaults on civilians, direct assaults. You know, there's a reason why uh, uh, General Surovikin. Uh, uh, Former chief of the Russian Air Force got the uh, you know moniker of you know you know General Armageddon. Uh, there, you know there was a reason for that. I mean, I do think there's some distinctions to be made here. One is that the Russians at least still seem to you know, despite all the insane rhetoric you see on television, have some sense of shame because they try and deny that they did all these things, right? They deny that, you know, there were atrocities in Bucha. They, they claim that those things were, uh, you know, things that were uh, staged by the Ukrainians or, you know, that they deny that they were engaged in rape and pillage and ear pin, et, et cetera. Um, whereas the Hamas guys were literally videoing this and I, I'm, I'm not sure I, I mean, on the Russians, I'm not sure I really agree that there's a sense of shame. I think they they lie, you know, as the saying goes, partly because it's in their nature to lie, uh, yes. partly to, <laughs> to agree spread. With that. Yeah, <laughs> we know the reference there. Uh, partly to spread disinformation and to kind of divide and confuse their opponents. But you know, I think a it's. It's not just kind of ghoulishly interesting to watch Vladimir Solovyov and his uh, Margarita Simonyan on Russian TV, but I think it's instructive because what what you see them advocating for is genocide, yeah, absolutely, murder, yeah. Well, and 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 I think that's you're 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 talking me out of my own original position here. I mean, because I also you know when you think about the. Uh, Prigozhin videos of the you know, executions by sledgehammer and whatnot, which were videoed and uploaded. Yeah. You know, I may be giving the Russians too much credit. You know, that'll be like one of the first times I've ever been accused of that. But, but, um, but you know, fair, fair enough. You know, look, 
you're right that these people are all talking to each other. And that's really, from our point of view, the strategic point we have to take away, I think. Uh, You know, people have asked the question of not only is there an Iranian hand in this, is there a Russian hand in this? As you point out, there were two Hamas delegations that, you know, in the last six months that have met in Moscow with Lavrov and have been talking with the Russians. I don't, obviously, there. I have no evidence that there's a direct Russian hand in this. I would actually be a bit surprised if there were. But having said that, you know, there's also the question of, you know, Kui Bono here, you know, and there the Russians clearly benefit. Um, You know, James Forrestal said back in 1947 to George Marshall, after Marshall came back from the London Foreign Minister's Conference, where he was trying to sell the Marshall plan to the uh, Soviets, which they rejected, of course, um, that uh, the only thing he said that Russia can export really is chaos and anarchy. And sadly, that remains the case today. You know, I mean, they benefit from global disorder. And, you know, when people talk about the rules based international order and they make fun of us, you know, policy wonks for talking about all this, when it gets undone, what you get is no rules and barbarism. I think that you know, there's also, uh, I can imagine, indirect connections. The, the intelligence world is one big marketplace. And, you know, I, I can you imagine the Iranians saying, okay, in return for all these Shahid drones that we're going to sell you, and maybe the factories that will help you set up to procure them, we want intel. We want we want what you have on how the Israelis do whatever they do, and I would bet you the Russians are more likely to have the Israelis penetrated uh, than the Iranians are. And if that's the case, I can imagine that it's you know that this was just a part of some sort of filthy deal that the uh, they're willing to cut. Well, what about what comes next? I mean, perfectly uh, possible. You know, my... Wouldn't wouldn't surprise me. Yeah. Let me ask you something about that, Elliot. So, so what... you know, we yeah, had a couple of weeks back. We had a couple of weeks back, Isabel Kirshner on our show, and one yes. of the things she the... talked about was the deep, the deep divide between secular Israelis and the Haredim. And as this was all going on, I was really struck, you know, as the call up is going on and, you know, Israel is facing some manpower issues here. And one of the reasons there may not have been sufficient manpower is that, you know, they can't rely on everybody to be called up anymore because there's a growing proportion of the population who don't serve. And you wonder, I mean, I I think this will be buried while the, you know, fight is going on in Gaza. And and maybe if it spreads, you know, into a broader, bigger war with, you know, Lebanon, Syria, the West Bank, and maybe directly with Iran, you know, this could be a, you know, four or five front war for Israel very quickly, uh, if things go badly. But at some point after that, you know, after we're past all that, I, I, you know, I worry that Israelis are going to be in those who've served, those who've been called up, those who went and grabbed their, you know, their pistols and ran to the south to try and rescue people and are now, you know, reporting for their, for, you know, their um, reserve duty are going to be infuriated by these people who refuse to serve 
and continued, you know, to act like, you know, it was time to celebrate Simchat Torah, you know, even as their fellow countrymen were being slaughtered. And I just, I, you know, I just don't know how that works. So I, I guess, um, so first at the moment, I think you just have an incredible, my, my senses, this is an incredible feeling of unity. I mean, everybody's in it together. Everybody's getting rocketed. And this will be, this is such a searing experience. I mean, one way to think about it, it was grim. This is the biggest massacre of Jews since the Holocaust. You know? Um, and so that there will be that unity. Secondly, whatever, however Israel comes out of this, it's the, it'll be somewhat straightened uh, economic circumstances. They'll have to spend a lot more money, I'm sure, on military things. They'll be drafting more people probably for longer periods of time. All BB um, and his guys, I think, will be out. Uh, you're more likely to get people like Lapid or uh, Benny Gantz in, and I think you're more likely to get a coalition which does not depend on the Haredim or on the ultra right movements. If that were to happen, um, then I think simply on budgetary grounds alone. What's going to happen is the the ultra orthodox are just not going to get the same kind of budget allotments that they've been getting, you know, and that that's the biggest thing that's going to motivate people. Is you have very large families, basically they're being paid for by the state, but that's only possible when you have a you know an economy that's doing very well, and you can you can afford to do that, and they're not going to be able to afford to do that. So I think. Some of this is going to get resolved, um, is going to get resolved that way. But whatever, whoever this ends, I mean, the Israel that's coming out of this is a very, very different Israel. It's, it will be, I believe in some ways, will be more transformative than 73. Uh, you know, 73, you could pin on a few people. There was this sort of, you know, redeeming story of success uh, with the crossing of the Suez Canal and all that. I don't think the story is going to be quite as clear-cut in this case. I mean, this is just going to be much grimmer. Uh, You know, there could be way, way... I mean, basically in 73, they didn't really suffer destruction to civilian infrastructure. And if, God forbid, Hezbollah gets involved in this, um, they could really suffer massive damage to their civilian infrastructure. So it's... It's... it's, (laughs) You know, Isabel Kirshner wrote a wonderful book. It's not going to be a reliable guide to uh, the Israel that exists a year after it was published mm-hmm. uh, just because of this transformative event. Can, can I ask you, Sure. Um, you know, we haven't really talked about what Israel does next. I mean, none of the options look good, but it, it does seem to me in any case, no matter what we think, uh, what, you, what we're going to see is the Israelis go into Gaza in a big way. Um, what do you think? about that? What do you think they will be able to accomplish? What do you think we should be saying to them? Yeah. What do you think they'll be trying to do? We actually should be asking your son Rafi this because he's actually written, you know, uh, a monograph with some colleagues at Rand about, you know, lessons that Israel has learned from its previous wars with Hamas. Um, so obviously they they've gone to school on what happened in both 2006 when they were involved in uh, kind of urban fighting in in Lebanon, which didn't as as you say go well. Their performance in in 07 and 08 uh, in 
in Gaza was, I would say, better than than what they did in in Lebanon. And they, you know, uh, been trying to figure out. They've been doing a lot of, you know, uh, training on urban warfare, uh, knowing that there was a prospect that they might have to go back into either Gaza or Lebanon. Now, having said that, this is like the worst kind of fighting, you know, imaginable. When I was first serving in the U.S. Embassy in Tel Aviv in 1980 and 81, you know, I went to Gaza and I was saying it was so incredibly crammed and crowded. Uh, You know, it's a small area of land about half the size of the five boroughs of New York combined. And when I was there, the population was 420,000. And I thought it was the, you know, most densely populated place I'd ever seen in my life. And I grew up in New York City. And now it's a population of 2.2 million. I mean, this is going to be a brutal, ugly, block-by-block fight. The Israelis will do their best you know, to avoid casualties, they'll do roof knocking and they'll do, they'll drop leaflets and they'll uh, be broadcasting, you know, messages to people to get out as they approach different areas that they're going to. Part of the problem is there's nowhere for these people to go. The Egyptians won't open the, the Rafa crossing to let, you know, let them into the Sinai, to let them into Egypt. You know, the electricity has already been off now for some number of hours. So the only electricity being generated in the place is by generators that people have. Um, At some point, you know, they won't have the gas to run those generators. You know, predictably, uh, there will be civilian, there already have been civilian casualties. There'll be others, there'll be collateral damage, despite the fact that I think it's the case that no military tries harder to avoid civilian casualties than the Israelis. But you know, I think it's just inevitable that as much support as they have now, you're going to start to see people peel off when it gets really, really ugly, you know, and the Israelis, I think, are kind of caught between a rock and a hard place, right? Because the previous strategy of going in and mowing the lawn, bombing, you know, for a couple of days that they did in 2014, 2021, has been shown to be ineffective. They need to do, you know, root out Hamas uh, military capability, more root and branch. But, you know, this is, there's the danger here of being, you know, sticking your finger in the Chinese finger trap because they don't want to reoccupy Gaza. That would be horrific. You know, so how, you know, the the question is, you know, how far do you go and where do you stop? And where, when do you define victory as having accomplished your end of, destroying the military capability of Hamas. And I, you know, I don't know where that point is, and I don't know that the Israelis do either. Yeah, I think you're right, although I would, um, I guess I would modify it a little bit. First, I think they have historically been extremely sensitive on uh, civilian casualties. I don't think they're going to continue to be. I I mean, or they will pay some attention to that. But I think for the most part, they are going to prioritize killing the leadership of Hamas. And if they think that, you know, the roof knocks get in the way of that, they won't do the roof knocks. I mean, I, I just think, I just think this, they've now moved to a 
different place. Um, so I think there's that. I, I am not sure that they are unwilling to reoccupy Gaza for some short period of time. I, I think that their, their priority is going to be first and foremost to kill the entire leadership of Hamas and secondarily to kill as many of its foot soldiers as possible. Yeah, I agree with that. And, and, and thirdly, you know, so bludgeon the place that nobody's going to think it was a good idea to try this again. I mean, because they, you know, the, and then Israeli generals are already saying this, that, you know, this is because of what's happened. They feel that it's an us or them kind of um, set of circumstances. So I don't expect to see the same kind of restraint that the Israelis have shown in the past. And I don't, and at this point, I think they will care as much about the civilian population of Gaza as, you know, the Brits did about the civilian population of Berlin or Hamburg. Namely, they won't. Yeah. So let me ask you, let me now, ask you. Well, now, well, can they get away with that? I don't know. I mean, yeah. you know, it's obviously a different set of circumstances. And uh, I agree with you, some of the support will peel off. But but it, to the extent I can see inside their heads now, the, you know, the conversation that we're having would seem just beside the point. So, so let me let me raise a question or two for you. If they reoccupy Gaza, you said for some limited time, isn't there a danger that if they occupy Gaza completely and then leave, that it actually ends up undermining, you know, Israeli deterrence because it allows the um, legend to grow that the resistance you know, led to Israeli withdrawal. And second, even if they kill all the leaders and kill a bunch of the foot soldiers, g- given the sort of draconian, you know, sort of picture you painted, do they end up among the, you know, survivors creating just a new, you know, a, a new recruiting pool for Hamas? It, they may. Um, I'm, I'm, it's not a good option. I'm, um, you know, I'm, and I'm not. I'm trying not to say what I think they ought to do. I'm just trying to think through what I think they will do. I, I think their reaction would be: Look, if, if, despite the fact that all these people say, you know, you love life, we love death, they don't want to die either. And if you, you know, you really show people that the consequence of this is you're all dead. And not only you're dead, you know, your families don't have homes. You've probably lost children and wives and all that, that there's some sort of deterrent. I, is that the case? I'm not, uh, I'm not sure. But I also think you know, that what they may think is, you know, if you really eliminate Hamas and Pidge, yes, new organizations may grow up, but they will be different organizations. And uh, hopefully with different objectives and above all, with the understanding that if this happened once, it can happen again. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that's how they will think about it. The, you know, one of the things I said in the, in the Atlantic piece is the way the Israelis have framed this. And you, you'll remember this from the, um, uh, the nuclear 
reactor crisis. They are, they're always talking about restoring their deterrent, you know, because that's basically how they have to live. I mean, they've, once they decided that they can't actually simply dictate terms from Arab capitals, they, what they've had to do is say, okay, we've got to convince everybody, don't mess with us, otherwise it's a disaster. So, and I'm not sure that that's necessarily the best way for them to think about strategy, but again, my, my view doesn't matter. Uh, what matters is their view. And I think their view is that that's how you have to think about it. So that's, that is what their mindset is going to be going into this, that they need to do th something which will restore the deterrent. And I think the way they will try to do that is by inflicting the utmost devastation on Hamas. And if part of that is leveling all of Gaza and tens of thousands of civilian casualties, I think they'll do it. Let me ask uh, one final question, and, and then we can wrap up this necessarily gloomy and dark, you know, episode of Shield of the Republic. Necessarily so. If this actually triggers a bigger war, a regional war, you know, a five-front war with Hezbollah raining, you know, rockets and missiles from Lebanon with. Shia militias in Syria striking into into Israel with uh, turmoil on the West Bank uh, that requires the attention of the Israeli military as well, and then presumably, you know, if that happens, the Israelis are going to carry the fight to to Iran directly somehow, uh, figuring that you know if they don't take care of the nuclear program themselves now, you know, God knows what will happen in light of you know what what you said earlier about barbarism versus civilization, where does, where does it end? How, how does it, how does it conclude? Well, I think in, I mean, that is grim. Um, I think if that were to happen, that it would essentially be a two front war. It would essentially be the Hezbollah and Hamas. They have been thinking very hard about how to do it. I think it would be very similar to what you're seeing here uh, or you know, what you're already seeing in Gaza, that, you know, that level of destruction um, I think they would deal with Iran later. I think the West Bank they can keep under control. Uh, and similarly, I think Syrian militias on the Golan Heights, you know, those are, um, those are limited. And I wouldn't be surprised if we end up cooperating a little bit with them behind the scenes to enable them to neutralize that. But I think if it's that level of conflict, I mean, then you're talking about war, which... You know, will have be an order of magnitude greater in terms of Israeli casualties and several orders of magnitude greater in terms of Arab, um, both military and civilian casualties. But, but I think, and I mean, as you say, it's necessarily grim. You know, the last time you had a real existential conflict between civilized state and barbarian state Look at what happened to Hamburg and Berlin. And I think I, I wouldn't I wouldn't rule that out. I mean, this is, you know, for the Israelis, I think part of the shock to them is not just the failure and it's not that, not just the atrocities, as horrible as those are. And, you know, I think it's, you know, if you don't know people there or you haven't visited there, it's a little bit hard to imagine just how close this cuts for every single Israeli. It's, it's that... I think the Israelis really felt that the existential question had been dealt with. 
that, you know, they, that sense which was palpable before 67 and to some extent on the first couple of days of the 1973 war that, you know, the state itself could be destroyed and, you know, whole populations massacred in a hideous repeat of what happened during World War II. That, that question was off the table. Well, it's back. 50 years later, it's back on the table. Yeah. And, and, and I think we need, you know, friends of Israel need to understand, the enemies of Israel too, for that matter, need to understand, you know, when people really think that their existence is on the table, and not just the existence of a state, but the existence of their families, of their kids, of their grandchildren, stuff, they really will do whatever it takes. Yeah, to, to try and find something more upbeat and uplifting to end on. I would note that in Iran, uh, in the aftermath of the attacks on Saturday at a uh, yes. soccer game, uh, some Hamas sympathizers uh, tried to you know, fly Palestinian flags during the, the soccer game, and the overwhelming chants from the fans were, take those flags and stick them where the sun don't shine. Um, yeah. And, and um, I guess the one, you know, glimmer of hope one can try and grasp here is that, you know, if you go back to 73, if you go back 50 years and, uh, you know, that it was a moment of great peril for, for Israel, but the outcome ultimately was the beginning of the first treaties of peace between Israel and its neighbors, first with the Egyptians, then later with the Jordanians. Um, now there are even more. Before this all happened, there was a prospect of maybe, you know, more na uh, normalization between Arab states and Israel. And maybe after some delay, I don't think it's going to happen immediately, but it's maybe at some delay, we could get back to that. So, you know, m maybe there are some at least hints of scintillas of glimmerings of a silver lining in this otherwise you know overwhelming cloud i think that's right but i and i also think look there's in in the middle of all the horrors there's some stories of transcendent heroism you know yeah, these, absolutely there are these two uh, retired generals in their 60s who this happens and they grab their and these are all these are both left wing guys uh, who hated the Netanyahu government, by the way, you know, they rushed down south and rescued their families right. at gunpoint. I mean, it's, yeah. and, and there's sort of societal resilience and commitment. Um, you know, everybody's, everybody's pitching in. So it's, you know, it's a dark, very dark scene, but it's not a completely dark scene by a long shot. Well, on that, slightly more uplifting note. Uh, we probably need to wrap up and let you and Judy get back to your walking tour of the Cotswolds. Uh, we look forward to having you back stateside. Stay safe uh, in your travels yeah. and we'll, we'll see you soon. Great. Thanks, Eric. Take care.